Good morning. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for this time we have to think about your words, to think about your love for us. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, for the past several weeks, uh, I've been receiving a daily email from HGTV. This email has the enticing subject line, you could win a luxurious mountain home and $250,000 cash. And if you open it up, it gets better. They're giving away a vehicle that's brand new that's worth $100,000. Now, I understand I'm a rational person that there's a very small chance that I would be the person that would win this wonderful, luxurious mountain home in Vermont. But I'm also an optimistic person. This is where my wife and I differ. She's, she's realist and pessimistic. I'm realist and optimistic. She says, we'll never win X, Y, or Z. I'm like, some rando's gonna win it. It could be us. <laughs> so I dutifully open the email after I've done my other liturgical items of the day, coffee and Wordle and open the email, give away my personal data, and I think in that moment, I hope that I win. It's the thought that comes to mind. And this is our usual reference point for the concept of hope, right? When we say we hope that we win the giveaway, we hope it's warm enough this weekend to get outside, we hope we can finish our schoolwork or our projects on time, it's an aspirational attitude toward the future that is actually unclear and uncertain. It's wishing for the best possible outcome, but knowing that it's an unknown, that the outcome is dependent on things outside of our control. This kind of hope is a wispy, fleeting feeling that is either quickly fulfilled or dashed. So when we hear the words of Paul in the letter to Rome today, and he's telling us that we rejoice in hope, we need to step back and think about what exactly this hope is, what its foundation is, what its character is. This hope is not the same as hoping for a good outcome among other possible outcomes. It's not a mindset that tells us to think positive thoughts, to send out good vibes into the universe. It's a hope rooted in Christ, his death and resurrection. It's a hope fueled by God's love, and it's a hope that's empowered by God's spirit. So we're going to think together today about this unique hope that we have in Christ. First of all, this is a hope that is rooted in the resurrection. A few weeks ago, Ryan talked with us about the logic of faith, how it's not a blind leap into the unknown, but rather a relational trust in God who has proven to be trustworthy, who has proven to be faithful to keep promises. In a similar way, Christian hope is not hope in an undefined, vague possibility of an outcome. It is rather a hope rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ, who was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection redefines all reality for the Christian. Today's passage in Romans from chapter 5 begins with a therefore. And what directly precedes this, therefore? What does this whole passage about rejoicing and hope hinge on? The end of chapter 4 that we read last week says, Righteousness will be counted to us 
who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can confidently hope in our past, present, and future reality to be defined by the risen Christ. We can put our hope in new possibilities with Jesus, as Sibley Ruffing shared with us. It's what we proclaim every week as the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are hoping, in a sense, for what has already happened, right? The victory of Jesus over death and evil through the cross and the resurrection. This is why the Gospels are meticulous about the reality of the resurrection as a factual, historical event. It's not an idea. It's not an apparition. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling that everyone got when they remembered their friend Jesus. No. John's account of the resurrection in chapter 20 takes care to explain that the disciples touched Jesus' resurrection body. They put their hands on his wounded side. Jesus ate fish. People hugged him and clung to him. This was a real body that was raised from the dead. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul describes this matter as being of first importance in chapter 15. Paul says, Jesus was raised from the dead, and then he rattles off the names of the eyewitnesses. And then he says Jesus appeared to 500 people, most of whom were still living. And Paul makes this point with the implication that if you want to go talk to them, you can. They're alive. They saw it happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go see for yourself what they have to say. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was of the utmost importance for the early church. Everything else flowed backwards and forwards from this crucial point in the middle of human history. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our faith is futile. So Christian hope has asked the crucial question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did it really happen? And when you answer yes to that most important question, hope is just a commitment to continuing to say yes to that question, to continuing to live a life that looks like it's really true. So much of Paul's ethical teaching in the end of his letters, for one example, in Colossians chapter 3, they start like this. Therefore, since Christ has been raised, this is how you live your life. You should put away greed and sexual immorality and idolatry. Christian living and Christian hope is all about acting like Jesus really died, Jesus really is risen, and Jesus really will come again. And working out what that means for our bodies, our relationships, and our human communities. So in Romans 5, Paul is saying, therefore, therefore, since we all agree that Jesus was really, truly, actually raised from the dead, here's what else we know. We have peace with God. We have access to God's grace. We get to boast in the hope that we have. Remember in chapter 2, Paul said to his Jewish audience, you can't boast in your special relationship because God has called Jew and Gentile together. And in Ephesians, Paul says, it's grace and not works so that you cannot boast Gentiles about your special efforts to get here. The only thing Paul lets us boast about is our hope in sharing in the glory of God. 
and in our sufferings that produce that hope. Christian hope is not without its trials. Christian hope is not devoid of pain. It does not fix the broken things in our lives by some kind of magic. But Christian hope is rooted not in past losses, not in present circumstances, not in future unknowns. It points beyond those things to the past, present, and future reign of Jesus, our crucified and risen King. And this hope that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus does not disappoint us, Paul says, because of God's love, which has been poured into our hearts. Now, we've just experienced the holiday dedicated to one kind of love this week. But the love of Valentine's Day, as special or as sweet as it might be, is not the love Paul is saying has been poured into our hearts here. Romantic love only works if there's reciprocity, a mutual exchange of affection, right? If you know someone in a relationship where they are constantly the ones loving and giving attention and they're not receiving it back, you would rightly say that's an unhealthy relationship. You might counsel them to find someone who can love them back, who can exchange this attention and affection. But the love of God has given us is a categorically different love. Romance, friendship, familial love are merely incomplete representations of the love God has poured into our hearts. The love poured into our hearts is the love that God demonstrated when Jesus died for his enemies. It's as if Paul wrote the word love and immediately realized he needed to define that word for us. Because Paul goes on, he says, while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, Paul emphasizes, while we were still sinners. And again, while we were enemies. That's the context where Jesus' death made the love of God known. We've talked a lot in previous weeks about how all have sinned and come under God's deserved judgment. No one, not Jew, not Gentile, escapes unscathed. And yet, during that season of sin and rebellion and weakness, Jesus was already loving us into a reconciled relationship loving us into peace with God, loving us into access into the grace in which we now stand. That's what was happening at just the right time. God loved us. So we know what love is in this way, Christ's death for his enemies. And what do we learn from that love? We learn that it does not depend on those feelings of affection or on the circumstances of your life or even on the object of love being worthy in any way. Paul makes it very clear in Romans and throughout his epistles that we did not earn this love. We did not hold up our end of the covenant. It is God's grace from first to last. We've been talking about the faith of Abraham the last two weeks and how it was reckoned as righteousness to him. We read that passage in Genesis 15 where it says, by faith Abraham, and it was reckoned to righteousness. But we didn't finish the chapter of 15. So what happens next in the story with Abraham? He says, Lord, how will I know that this promise will come to me? How will I know that you will give us the land, that I will have a descendant? And the next thing that happens, he doesn't tell him, he does something. So he tells Abraham, cut animals, sacrifice animals, cut them in half, and spread them into two pieces. So you can 
have an image of, it's pretty bloody, but animals, one half here and one half here, and space in between. All right, and, and this is not a, an unfamiliar thing to Abram. He knows what's happening. This is a covenant ceremony. So the idea is that in the covenant, the animals are sacrificed, the parties walk together, and they're basically saying, whatever happened, to, if I do not keep my end of the covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to me as well. So Abraham's got the context. He knows what's going to happen. He sacrifices the animals, and then he falls into a deep sleep. He's knocked out. <laughs> he is out of the picture. And what happens? Who goes through the animals? Who completes the covenant? It says, a flaming pot and a torch of fire. What do we know about fire from the book of Exodus? We know about the burning bush. We know about the pillar of fire that led the people. This is God saying, I'm making this covenant, I'm keeping this covenant, and if it gets broken, I will bear the penalty. May it be to me as it is to these animals. That's the steadfast love of God revealed to Moses in Exodus 32. It's the love of John 3.16. We often think of this in terms of quantity, right? God so loved the world this much. But in John 3.15, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up and draw people to myself. And that's the kind of love that God loves the world with. So God doesn't just love the world so much, but he loves the world in a specific manner that he gave his only son to bear the penalty of that broken covenant, to restore the enemies and sinners of this world into beloved community as sons and daughters once again. One of our colleagues in the prayer book that we pray in morning prayer puts it this way. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. God's love creates relationship and community with the loveless. We are actually made lovely, loveable, love-filled, because God pours the love of Christ into our hearts. There's a beautiful old hymn that starts, My song is love unknown, the Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they may lovely be. So it's this love that steadfastly seeks the good of one's enemies that fuels our hope. So what does this love have to do with our hope? Paul says the reason Christian hope does not disappoint us is because this love is being poured into our hearts. And I love that image, like being filled up by fuel at the gas station or plugged in at the Tesla station, if <laughs> that's your vehicle, AD compete. It's something that is not out of my own resources. It's something I can access or partake in or receive because of the work of Jesus Christ in reconciling me to God. It's both the love that God has for me at all times, and Paul assures us later in Romans, right, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but it's also the love that God gives us to direct to those around us. Jesus said, as I have loved you, in that same way, you are to love one another. And God makes it possible for us to look at our enemies with the eyes of Christ, to see them as God sees them, someone for whom Jesus stretched out his arms of love 
on the hard wood of the cross. And so we are capable of continuing in hope, not being disappointed by this fallen world with its endlessly depressing and soul-crushing realities. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who certainly had every reason to be disappointed with the state of his world, said it this way. If at times we begin to despair because of the relatively slow progress being made in ending racial discrimination, and become disappointed because of the silence of people whose support is so urgently needed, and because of the undue cautiousness of the federal government, everyone in every sphere will let us down. He goes on, let us gain consolation from the fact that God is able and in our sometimes difficult and lonesome walk up Freedom's Road, we do not walk alone, but God walks with us. God walks with us. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, commissions his disciples to go out and to disciple all the nations, to baptize and to teach. But we know from Christian history that he was also sending them out to die, to be martyred at the hands of their enemies. And as he sends them out to this inevitable fate, he says, I am with you. I think that verb tense is pretty important because he's not saying, I will be with you whenever that happens. He's recalling for us the God, the name that God uses in the Exodus liberation, the I am is with you. And nothing can separate us from that presence, that love that is in Christ Jesus. Definitely not our own sins and mistakes, because God's love, remember, came to us in our most sinful, our weakest state. And God's love will stay with us in whatever trials we face. No matter who our enemies are, no matter what obstacles to beloved community exist in our neighborhoods and relationships, God walks with us. Finally, Paul says this love that is rooted in the resurrection, that is fueled by God's love, it is given to us by the gift of the Spirit. We heard today from the prophet Isaiah that the Spirit of God anoints to preach good news, liberation, healing, and comfort. In John's account of the resurrection, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This breathing on his disciples is meant to recall for us when God breathes on Adam and creates a living being. And the first time we hear about the Spirit is hovering over the waters, the chaos of creation, right? What we are seeing is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a new, renewed, transformed creation brought to life again by the work of God in Jesus and dispensed to us by and through the Spirit. Jesus did not leave us orphans or comfortless. We're not meant to wander the earth alone, clinging to those flimsy shreds of human hope with no assurance, no comfort, no evidence of the presence of God. No, we are meant to live in and by and with the Spirit. So we can cry, Abba, Father. We are meant to live in and by and with the Spirit, in unity with our brothers and sisters in the faith. We are meant to live in and with and by the Spirit in our work for justice for the oppressed, liberation of the captives, healing of the sick. Paul talks a lot about life in the Spirit later in Romans, which I believe we are finishing our first part on Romans before Lent, and we'll pick up this section 
in Eastertide. But in chapter 8 he says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Like Dave shared last week, God is in the business of raising the dead. God is in the business of bringing things into existence that do not exist. God is in the business of new creation. And so we hope in this way, empowered by the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our community here at Church of the Cross. This is one reason we like to uh, celebrate testimonies here in our worship, to hear the stories of God's Spirit at work, raising things to life, creating things that are new, and giving us cause to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's also why we share our hardships and sufferings with each other. Paul also calls us to bear these burdens together, to comfort each other, to mourn together. No matter how much joy and celebration we can muster in this life, we are all painfully aware that this world is not yet made new. Again in Romans 8, we read, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the hope of Christ. Being empowered by the first fruits of the Spirit and waiting in patience for what God has promised will come. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are on that trajectory of mourning to gladness, of pain to joy, remember the words of Dr. King, God walks with us in each and every step of that way. We know that from the, his, the story of Jesus. God suffered, God died, God has been raised. We have seen it happen in the life of Jesus, and we know that he, our great high priest, can sympathize and understand all of those points of human experience. So be steadfast in your hope. Be steadfast in the, steadfast in the knowledge that Christ has died for us, that God has de demonstrated a love beyond measure in the cross. Be steadfast in the assurance that Jesus was raised for our justification and lives and reigns even now to make intercession for us. And be steadfast in the life of the Spirit, knowing that God is at work within you, within me, to make us and everything new, redeemed, and restored. I'd like to conclude by praying over us that collect for mission from morning prayer in its entirety. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.